Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 25th, 2015. This is episode 1598 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because it's something we've never talked about, at least in depth with a guest before. It is owning suppressors, a.k.a. silencers, how you do it, what they do for you, what they don't do for you, uh, myths about silencers, both from a performance standpoint and from a legalistic standpoint, concepts uh, of what it actually takes to be able to own one, why you might want to, how it's really not as hard as people think it is, etc. And busting the big myth that we probably don't have to be bust here, that they're only for criminals, you know, uh, what are the legitimate uses of a silencer. There are many. We'll be talking about all of that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training, but... Even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today, and remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontalis saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? 
If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. All right, so next up, uh, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the MSB, you can help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode, and uh, you'll get discounts from many great providers that will more than pay for your membership. We've got over 60 vendor partners in the MSB now, uh, many of which are selling things you're buying every single year anyway, so getting your money back is not hard, and you get support the show. And I've got big news. I've been rambling on about this for a couple weeks, saying I've been working on getting you guys a new seed vendor, somebody that you would be buying seed by like the pound from if you chose to. And uh, it was important to me that I find you guys someone really, really good for this, that it wasn't just whoever I could find. It was someone that met some criteria. And the criteria in particular that I wanted to meet was first, I wanted someone that really did well with large bulk orders. Uh, we have some great seed providers in the MSB, but when it comes to like buying a pound of seed, you know, it's it doesn't get you know kind of the price breaks that you're looking for. Not really geared toward supplying the person who's putting in you know a two acre market garden or doing a microgreens business or doing a major large scale permaculture project or something like that with a large like sepulcher style feed mix, seed mix. So I wanted them to have the capacity to sell those large bulk orders at, at a good break price for the larger orders. I also wanted a company with no GMO. I did not want a company that just happened to not have any GMO seeds right now. I knew it was a good buzzword. I wanted someone that took the safe seed pledge. Third, I wanted the pricing breaks on the larger orders of, say, a quarter pound to several pounds or more to be really good. Uh, to actually make a difference. So not just the base price to be good, but those price breaks to be good. Because if I get you a discount on something that's overpriced, it doesn't really help you. And fourth, I wanted the service, the shipping, and the inventory to be exceptional. I, I really wanted to make sure that we had a company that we didn't have like, well, we have you know huge bulk orders, but they had like two or three varieties of tomato or something like that. Or it took four weeks for you to get your order. Or if you had to ask them a question or do an inquiry on your order that you know no one got back to you. And I found this company along the way, worked with them through last year, called Any Seeds. I've placed several large bulk orders with these guys so far, and everything came out stellar. I reached out to them. I was able to negotiate a discount for you guys in the MSB, and best one I've ever pulled for you on seeds, 20%. And when you're looking at a place where you're looking at buying seed, you know, by four ounces to a pound or more, and you're getting 20% discount, I mean, you know, it's conceivable a lot of you guys out there might be ordering 200 300 bucks worth of seed a shot. 20% on $300 is 60 bucks. MSB's 50 Less if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder. Uh, those guys, you know, before you join, send me an email, put service discount TSPC in the subject line, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, I'll get back to you. But for everybody that's already a member or thinking about becoming a member, 
20% off any seeds. Even if you're not a member, get over to NEseed.com. Uh, NEseed.com, again, no S there. NEseed, S-E-E-D.com. And take a look at what they have to offer. Another way you can help support this show if you're not going to become an MSB member is at least consider buying from the companies that do support the work we do, whether they're MSB vendors or whether they're sponsors or what have you. If you get over there, though, and you realize you're going to be placing a larger order, a larger order may, in fact, pay for your membership for a year. So do consider supporting the show in more than one way if possible. Again, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for that discount. Formula, get the discount. Send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with service discount TSPC in the subject line. Tell me about that service in one or two sentences. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more about how to sign up. Remember, I do take cash, check, money order, all kinds of stuff like that by U.S. mail if you don't want to use PayPal. And I do accept Bitcoin. Not a lot of you guys pay with Bitcoin, but I certainly am happy to accept it if you want to do just that. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1598, and that's because the episode is 1598. We have three, and I think I'm going to read two today. Usually I only read one, but man, I want to read two of these definitely. The first one is humor is about to become funny. Then I have how the pieces of eight became the dollar. And Japan Invades Korea, round two. If you want to hear Japan Invades Korea, you'll have to go to tspwiki.com for the year 1598 and read it. Uh, but I'm going to read two because they're both interesting enough to me that I'm going to make an exception. Humor's about to become funny. The word humor comes from a Latin word meaning body fluids. Medical theory in the 1500s teaches that one's basic personality is determined by a balance of internal fluids called humors, and a severe imbalance causes disease. When one says he's in bad humor, it means he's not feeling well. On stage, humorous characters are recognized by the audience. In modern day, these standard characters are things like the hovering mother, the airheaded friend, the vain beauty queen or king who struggles to turn away from a mirror. They are usually played for laughs, so when the new comedy Every Man Has His In His Humor became popular, the term humor becomes associated with comedy. So until 1598, humor didn't have anything to do with laughing. It didn't have anything to do with comedy. It just had to do with some medical theory that was kind of erratic and out there, huh? My take by Alex Shrug, comedy usually points to the absurdity of our existence. For example, when my wife and I arrived at my doctor appointment, my wife complained about my account on the new online medical system. I broke into the conversation. Hey, she's been accessing my medical records. Laughter. Call the FBI, I bleated. I want her arrested. More laughter. The office staff knows perfectly well that my wife has my implied consent to access my records, yet the law requires everyone to act as if she's totally unrelated to me, a stranger. When I observed the strict letter of the law, they were confronted with the absurdity of the law and laughed. My take by Jack Spierko on that one, many laws are absurd to the point of laughter until the point where they're enforced. That's all I'm going to say on that one, so I can fit in the other one. How the pieces of eight became the dollar. Spain begins minting the peso de ocho, or pieces of eight. It has the virtue of being divisible into eight royals, or reals. The wide coin is meant <clears throat> to be equivalent of a German thraller, which rhymes with dollar, which is a reference to the Bohemian Valley where the major silver mines exist. Thus, thraller means from the valley in Bohemia. The Spanish dollar will become a standard coin of the New World and will remain legal tender in the United States until the year 1857. 
My take by Alex Shrug, there were times when Great Britain could not supply enough coinage for the commerce of their colonies. The Americans then used more plentiful Spanish pieces of eight. Printed paper money began in 1690 in Massachusetts. They only issued an IO, they issued an IOU for government debt until the coins arrived. But officials noticed that people were trading the IOUs at a discount like money. Then someone had the brilliant idea of printing more IOUs than the government could possibly pay back in coins. The people discounted the IOUs even more, and the whole system collapsed. I'd like to say that we know better today. I'd really like to say that. As a side note on slang, the, the phrase, shaving a haircut two bits, is a reference to pieces eight aspect of the dollar. If a dollar is eight bits, then two bits is a quarter, or 25 cents. Um, yeah, you just heard a version of inflation. So just think of how this works. So the colonial banks have these silver coins on order. They're going to come in on a ship. They don't have enough coins to do commerce, so they make pieces of paper that say, hey, when the coins get here, you bring this piece of paper back, and we'll give you the coins. And then a person says, well, this came from the bank, and they tell their buddy, hey, I want to buy some potatoes. Here's this piece of paper. And a buddy says, well, I'll take that because I know I can get coins for it. When he gets it, he goes, I don't really want coins. I want, you know, uh, shoes for my horse. So he goes down to the smith, and he gets shoes for his horse. And it just starts passing around, and some, some genius says, hey, you know what, this is a pretty good scam. Now, notice the people were discounting it. In other words, they were saying, since I don't actually have, you know, let's say five ounces of silver, we'll trade this at a value of four ounces of silver. Why? Because the paper had less value, even if it was exchangeable, than the actual commodity was exchangeable for, because it wasn't exchangeable now. It was like a, a post-dated check. So I had, I'll give you my little scam, I guess you'd call it, when I was in the military, um, and I was pretty good at managing my money, I had a policy for people that wanted to borrow money that if they came to me and they wanted to borrow some money, I would loan them money. But this is how it worked. I knew when they got paid, 1st and 15th, like clockwork in the government. So you write me a check for $5 over the amount that I'm going to loan you for payday. You give me the check now, I give you the money now, and I am telling you right now, I will be at the bank cashing your check first thing in the morning before I even report to the motor pool to make sure that I get my money back. I want you to know that. And there were people that would come and say, I need 50 bucks, and not, they'd write me a check for $55. And there were people that would come to me one day and say, I need 20 bucks, and they'd write me a check for $25. And they'd come back and say, I need a check for 20 bucks, and they'd write me another check. And they might write me $60 worth of checks, three checks cost 15 bucks, Instead of just getting the 60 bucks. Uh, but that's the same type of scenario. I knew there was value to their check. It just wasn't there at the time, or they wouldn't have been asking for a loan. But I knew I was going to get my money back. Now imagine, imagine if I had started trading those checks like cash. The catastrophe it could have turned into. The system only works if the bank can redeem by the date on the note. There's no date on your note anymore, just the date it was created, because it's not payable from the bank. The debt is the money. Yes, to, to repeat with what Alex said, <laughs> I'd like to say that we know better today. I'd really like to say that. Clearly we don't. I think we actually know worse. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I have a special guest on the line. His name is... Lane Douglas, he graduated from UT Martin in 1975 with an engineering degree. After a few years as an engineer, he began working in industrial sales, retired in 2011 as director for MSC Industrial Supply. 
He then opened Southern Silencers in 2014, an NFA Class 3 silencer business, selling silencers in the state of Tennessee. He's a lifetime member of TSP. He is a Perma Ethos founding member as well, a longtime member of our community, and here today to talk to us about suppressors and why you might want one and what you got to do if you do want to get one. And with that, hey, Lane, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, it's great to be here. Good to be on the show. I've listened to the show many, many times, and it's good to be a part of it now. I'm glad to have you with us today, man. Uh, I have you on a talk today about suppressors or silencers, uh, depending on who's saying it. depends on how they call it, I guess, at times, uh, which is great. We've never really had anybody on a talk about that subject in depth before. Um, so I'm excited about that, but I always like to let the audience try to connect with the guest in the beginning and just know a little bit about them. I've already mentioned that you are a lifetime member of TSP and a Perma Ethos founding member, so people know you're part of this community, but can you kind of tell people, how'd you end up in a world where you, you run a company making silencers? What, what was the background that led you there? Because it's a cool thing, but I bet when you were like an eight-year-old kid, you weren't thinking, I'm going to grow up and make silencers. Certainly not. Uh, I had no idea I'd end up where I am today. I'm actually a retired uh, mechanical engineer. Uh, worked for a few years as an engineer and then uh, worked for 32 years as a manager for a very large industrial supply company and uh, retired at the uh, end of 2010 and sat around for a couple of years and got bored and uh, needed something to do. And I went out to uh, buy uh, a couple of free silencers myself and that process led me uh, after a difficult search and purchase and 14-month wait for silencers to uh, realize that, uh, you know, there, there was had to be a better way. And uh, so I decided to open Southern Silencers and get into the business myself. And, of course, now I've got a young son who is an engineering student and a daughter and a son-in-law who is a law enforcement uh, deputy U.S. marshal uh, that uh, are very interested in the business as well. Well, very cool, man. Can we start out with something I, I think a lot of people are confused about? Uh, there's a lot of people that believe suppressors or silencers are uh, illegal, and that that's not the case now, is it? No, it's uh, uh, as I work gun shows. That's probably my most common question. Uh, silencers are, are definitely legal. They've always been legal at the federal level. Uh, they're legal today in 39 states and. Uh, in 1932, the uh, federal government decided to regulate them uh, when they were regulating uh, a few other things, machine guns and things like that. And so they fell under the uh, National Firearms Act in uh, 1932. Okay. And so I, I think people are also confused about, like, what you actually need in order to own uh, a silencer. Mm -hmm. I hear the word license a lot. You need a license to own one. Uh, or a permit, what is actually required of you so that you can legally own, uh, in this country, a suppressor? Well, to, to, to legally uh, purchase and own one, uh, you have to be able to uh, legally purchase and own uh, any other firearm. So, it's, you know, a person that can uh, buy a pistol or buy a shotgun can, can own a silencer. Uh, there is a process that's a little more in-depth for the silencer than, uh, with a regular handgun or a rifle or a shotgun. Uh, the, the background check, instead of going through the local uh, state uh, agency, uh, goes through the ATF. Uh, it's a quite a lengthy process that uh, you go through with that, and it's a $200 fee or tax stamp that has to be paid. But it's 
I, I, to me, it's similar to a title transfer on an automobile. Uh, every silencer has a serial number, and that serial number has to be transferred from the current owner, uh, which is me, uh, to the new owner. Which, I mean, is a lot, if you think about it, kind of like the tax system that we had, you know, that led to the American Revolution, a stamp-based tax system. So, uh, Or as a hunter, for instance, um, I buy my hunting license, and I can go out and, and hunt within my state under its regulations. But if I want to hunt ducks, uh, since there's some federal protection there, I don't buy a license from the federal government. I buy a stamp, a duck stamp indicating that I've paid a, a, a fee uh, to the masters in Washington for the privilege of shooting a duck. And I, I, I put that stamp on my, on my license. In this case, I'm not putting a stamp on a license. But I guess my bigger point is what you're doing is not acquiring a license or a permit. It's verifying that you've paid a tax more than anything else and that the government knows you paid that tax for that implement and it belongs to you. Yeah, that, that's very. That's correct. That's a very good example, Jack. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use that going forward. The duck stamp part. Uh, probably the only difference is the duck stamp is a manual, as you well know, and, and I know myself. Where the uh, tax stamp for a silencer is a one-time fee, and it's only paid once, and that stamp stays with the silencer. The only way it would be more than once would be if uh, if you actually sold the silencer to someone else. But uh, sure. Uh, very similar process, though. Yeah, I think another thing that I, I realized a long time ago about suppressors is in, in the whole world of needing a, an ATF stamp, they're probably the better deal than, let's say, something like getting a stamp for a fully automatic gun. Because if I buy, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this, but if I buy a suppressor through this process, it's not like it's married to a certain uh, weapon. Like some things I would do to alter a weapon that would require an ATF stamp, I can't ever change that thing again. But if I buy a suppressor, it's my suppressor, and it can go on multiple guns, so it can do double, trippy, triple, quadruple duty. Yeah, that's correct. It can, uh, you can use it on any guns, and it's not, for the most part, caliber-specific either. Uh, you know, you can buy a, a lot of people, for example, buy a, a forty-five caliber pistol silencer suppressor and use it on all their centerfire pistols and and can use it on a 300 blackout. Uh, they can't use it on other centerfire rifles. But, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's very functional in that regard, correct? So I think another thing that people might want to really know is how effective are they? We've... We've all seen the 1960s and 70s spy movies, and the guy sneaks into a building, and the guy's sleeping in bed, and he's going to take him out. So he goes, choo, choo, right like that, and then that's that's it. And you know, he's 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 capped him twice with a 45 indoors, and the next door neighbor's on the phone, and she never hears it. Um, they're not quite that effective generally, but they are pretty effective, are they not? Yeah, yes, they are, and uh, it, it, of course, it depends. It's it's. Uh it's caliber specific and weapon specific as well, but uh, it reduces the dust pull somewhere in the 15 to 45 dBA range, and uh, so it was an average of about 30 decibels uh, reduction. Which is, uh, and the way decibels and the way sound is measured, you know, if you go from 160 down to about 130, then you've uh, you've gone from needing hearing protection to not requiring hearing protection. Uh, at least if you you know if you go by the OSHA standards, they say 140 and below is hearing safe. So uh, a, a silencer uh, certainly does that. It makes uh, 
most all weapons or makes all weapons hearing safe, and it reduces the uh, the 22s, the 45s, the, the subsonic uh, caliber uh, weapons. Uh, they're, they're pretty quiet. They're, they're very quiet. Can, can you kind of talk about sure. why the, it works better for subsonic rounds? Uh, there, there's really two issues there, aren't there? Yes, there is. There's actually, uh, uh, when a fire and discharge, actually sound is produced in four methods. Uh, most everybody, you know, thinks about and understands the muzzle blast, and the, uh, which is a high-temperature, high-pressure gas, which is what the silencer actually captures and reduces itself. But there's also the sonic boom, which is the ballistic crack uh, that uh, is a function of subsonic or not subsonic ammo, and that's a number around 1127 feet per second. So anything that travels slower than 1127 is subsonic, and anything that travels greater than that. And and that sonic boom or ballistic crack uh, can be pretty loud, especially for some of your higher speed uh, uh, rounds and then you've got the mechanical noise, which is the moving parts of the firearm, which you never really hear until you start using the silencer, and then you'll start to notice those. And then also the contact with a target, if you're shooting metal targets or targets, you know, that uh, something more than a paper target. And and again, you'll start to hear that sound too when uh, the silencer's there. Is there a particular caliber or setup that's maybe the quietest? I know people would generally think the twenty two, but there's a lot of twenty two rounds that, that are are supersonic. Um and it just makes me think of things like when you shoot reduced uh say forty five or thirty eight special rounds through a rifle, they're really, really quiet. So are there maybe some instances where heavier bullets at, you know, slower speeds are actually quieter than some of what we think of as lighter calibers? Yeah, probably. Of course, the 22 is quiet because there is a lot of subsonic ammo for the 22. But probably the, the, the quietest is the 45 ACP. I mean, it's pretty much off the shelf. Uh, huh. Most all the loads that you buy uh, subsonic, and uh, it, it's to me, it's the quietest uh, of, of you know of the standard ammo that you can go out and buy without you know being real specific and trying to look and find subsonic ammo. That would make sense. And again, we got a big, slow, heavy round. That's uh, actually a very effective round as well. I'm I'm of the the opinion the reason I carry a 45 is they don't make a 46. Um, so so that makes me happy to hear. Do you know about some of the reasons people might want a, a, a silencer? I mean, everybody thinks about, like I said, the old spy movies and stuff like that. But there's there's a lot of practical reasons for this, aren't there? Well, yeah, I mean, besides the, the, the noise reduction, that uh, uh, the silencer the actually uh, reduces the uh, the uh, uh, the impact, you know, from from, from shooting the gun. I kind of brain dead there and, and lost uh, my thought process, though. But uh, you know, it, it's just easier to shoot the, the, with a silencer on there. The uh, it's it's not going to um, Hurt you as much. The recoil is going to be reduced. Uh, accuracy is improved. Uh, it does slightly improve the velocity of the round. So, I mean, there's other uh, pluses there. Uh, the hunters, uh, and it's legal to hunt with them, I think, in about 30 states now. It's certainly legal in Tennessee here where I am to hunt with a silencer. And uh, it, it's certainly a, a big plus as far as, uh, you know, the game is concerned, you know, with the, you know, the, Whatever you're hunting, whether it's deer or whatever, so is concerned too. 
Yeah, I, I think it also has a little bit of potential to help you maybe be a, a good neighbor or to maybe just make your neighbor less of a pain in the ass. Um, I have a buddy uh, that he shoots in his backyard all the time, and one of his favorite things to shoot is he has a little sig mosquito with a, a suppressor on it. And uh, he has a neighbor that likes to call the police. Now, the thing is, the police don't really care because where he is, he's not violating any law. But it's just made his life a little bit less annoying when he wants to go outside and shoot because people generally don't claim, uh, complain as much about what they don't hear or know about. And uh, you know he's far enough away that if he's out there shooting unsuppressed, it's very clear what's going on. If he's shooting suppressed, they really just don't notice. It just kind of blends into the background. Yeah, that's certainly a, a, a plus for sure, and I'm, I'm fortunate here where I'm here. I've got neighbors. I live on the lake, and I've got neighbors on both sides of me, but they're all uh, gun-friendly neighbors, so to speak, so we don't ever really worry too much about that part. But, uh, you know, you live in a neighborhood where you've got a neighbor that's a little bit grouchy or cranky or uh, doesn't like to hear the report of a firearm, it's, uh, it certainly eliminates that problem for the most part, uh, for sure. And I, I do think you, you know your comments are dead on too about uh, shooters who are maybe a little bit intimidated by a weapon or learning to shoot. I think it certainly would reduce things like flinching and things like that as well. Yes, it does. I mean, it you know it, it's uh, it's up to a thirty percent reduction in recoil, so that, the actual recoil itself is reduced. But it it's certainly the flinching part, the noise part that uh, people anticipate and and you know, affects their enjoyment of, uh, or their learning ability is definitely improved as well. Now, can we talk about what it takes to actually get the, the paperwork done? I mean, if you, you, you've already said, if I can buy a, um, a gun legally, then I can own a silencer legally. Um, when I go to buy a gun, I either show my concealed carry permit or I fill out a pretty simple short form. Um, what's the paperwork like when it comes to getting a uh, suppressor? So there's there's really three ways that uh, if you go back to that my original uh, conversation about the transfer of the serial number and think about that. So you're going to transfer that serial number either to an individual or you're going to transfer it to an NSA gun trust, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. Or you, or actually, if you own the corporation, you could transfer it to a corporation. But if you transfer it to an individual. Uh, you first start off with two copies of, of what is called a Form 4, and that's the actual transfer document that kind of provides the ATF with the information they need to begin their background check. Uh, you do a Form uh, 5330.20, which is just a, you know, says you're a U.S., basically confirms that you're a U.S. citizen. And then uh, along with that Form 4, you have to submit two sets of fingerprint cards, uh, a passport photo, and then you have to uh, get your local law enforcement official, and that's pretty well defined on the document what that is in each uh, area, but it's normally the county sheriff. And, and his signature doesn't really approve your purchase. What he does is verifies that you're uh, legally able to own, that you're not a convicted felon or whatever. So, But sometimes that gets missed construed, if you will, by the local sheriff, and, you know, he thinks he's got authority to approve and disapprove silencer ownership, so that becomes a, a little bit of a barricade or a hassle for some people. Yeah, I've heard of issues with uh, the, uh, the the head Leo for the area, maybe not saying no, but just not getting around to it, just 
I ain't got to it yet. You know, that that type of thing. Like, that's their way of blocking it. And I've heard of it with, you know, people trying to do this, people trying to uh, acquire something as simple as a CNR, Cure on Relics license, uh, or what have you. And that's really not what they're to do. That, that What's sent to them, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically saying that they've been notified so unless they have a reason to 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 object, something like, "Oh, this guy is a felon, and you didn't find it because he's been in my in in my jail, and we handed him over, or something like that," he is supposed to basically sign it to acknowledge that he's been informed. That's that's correct, and I've heard uh, other individuals, and, and and you know, predominantly all of mine is in Tennessee, or all of mine is in Tennessee. I mean, that's the area where I'm. Uh, Authorized and, and my license exists for, but gotcha. Um, so, what's the cost of all this? Is uh, in my case, I complete it, you know, at no charge for the uh, for the individual. I mean, I, I assist them with all the paperwork and all. There is a two hundred dollar fee, which is you know we talked about earlier that you know you, you submit when you submit the paperwork, but. The actual cost of the paperwork itself is really just the time it takes to get, you know, fingerprint cards and and passport photos and that kind of stuff. And your your company, I was reading on your site, you guys do as much as you can by law to to help people get it done. I mean, there are some things they have to do themselves. You can't you can't go give their fingerprints for them, obviously. <laughs> exactly. When when it, when I do an individual transfer, and I really encourage and 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 really try to convince people to, to consider the NFA gun trust. But uh, when I do an individual transfer, all they really have to do is the fingerprint card, the passport photo, and uh, get that signature. And they and actually sign the documents themselves. What, 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 what is this NFA trust that you keep talking about? Uh, what does it do? Why would it benefit us? Does it mean that someone else owns your, you know, your silencer or your gun or whatever? Well, an NFA trust is, is uh, or an NFA gun trust is actually a, a gun trust. It's another method of ownership of NFA items and silencers for, are one of the NFA items, but it can be used for other NFA items as well. It's a legal document. It's uh, created either by an attorney or uh, through uh, an Internet-based uh, legal document preparation firm. Uh, I've actually uh, got an affiliate relationship with probably two or three different uh, firms now, and, and it's a document that you can uh, you can obtain certainly less than $100. Uh, I've got one now that's down to a $59 range as far as uh, creating the NFA trust for the individual. Okay, and, and exactly, can you just, I, I still don't quite get exactly what this, is this like me having Sort of like me having a company, but instead of a company, it's a trust. Like I own it, and it owns the gun. Is is that how that works? Yeah, it's a it's a trust document that specifies ownership of certain NFA items. Okay. And the the uh, the NFA gun trust has four big advantages over the uh, individual transfer of the silencer. The first one comes with the uh, with the preparation of the documents that I talked about. Uh, you go from uh, Meeting all the other uh, things that I talked about, you know, with cards and Leo approval and all that, to all you need is the trust owner's signature, nothing else. There's no fingerprint card, no photos, no 
sheriff's approval or nothing there. And that, believe it or not, that's not the biggest advantage. The biggest advantage is the uh, use of the silencer. Uh, the, the trust owner or the trustee and anyone else that he names uh, as co-trustees can all use the silencer. Uh, whereas with individual ownership, only the owner or others in his presence and control can use the silencer. So, uh, you know, you could you, you can set up a, a trust and uh, put your uh, your son on it or your son's wife or your next-door neighbor or whatever, and he can take the silencer out and use it anytime he wants to. If he wants to go deer hunting in the morning or whatever, you know, he can take the silencer and use it. So use of the silencer and use of the silencer by several individuals is much easier. So that's the second advantage. Uh, when the trustee passes away, the successor trustee becomes the new trustee. It's, it's a seamless uh, passing of the trust from one generation down to the other. Or with individual ownership, a, uh, a new form for transfer must be executed. There's no $200 cost, but still you have to execute a new form for, and it has to go through ATF. And then the, uh, the final advantage is the, uh, the NFA trust transfers can be processed via electronic filing with ATF, which reduces the uh, approval process down to usually three months or less. Now, Right now, the electronic filing of Form 4s is uh, closed. It's been closed since January of 2013. It should be reopened, uh, hopefully, by this January. So that's the fourth advantage. That last part, uh, this thing that's been closed, what does that mean? What, what does that mean to someone that wants to, to get a silencer tomorrow, or is it only for people that want to transfer from one? I mean, what does that mean? I, I don't really understand that. <clears throat> Well, the federal government or the ATF uh, computer system was set up to allow us to electronically file this paperwork. These okay. uh, Form 4s that I mentioned, and actually a dealer-to-dealer transfer is called a Form 3. And uh, the system was uh, trucking along and doing very well, uh, and it just uh, we overloaded the system back in January of 2013, and believe it or not, here we are in June of 2015, and the government still doesn't have it fixed yet. Okay. So we do everything by mail. We, we mail everything. We manually complete Form 3s and Form 4s, and we mail them uh, back and forth to West Virginia, which is where the NFA, or where the ATF, excuse me, the ATF processing is done. Yeah, it sounds to me like the government's not put a really big priority on making this easier then. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's going to be uh, corrected probably for for a couple more years, and yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm really familiar with what I do to to clean and maintain uh, a rifle or a shotgun or a handgun. What about uh, suppressor silencers? What is the uh, the maintenance, cleaning, et cetera, like on those? Well, the uh, the uh, the 22 caliber silencer is the one that really you have to worry about cleaning the most. It's uh, The 22 round is, is pretty dirty and the 22 silencers or rimfire silencers uh, they have to be disassembled and cleaned and it's a soaking and brushing and sometimes scraping process to get that to carbon and lead build us off of it. Uh, most of your centerfire rifle silencers are self-cleaning. Uh, the, the, the high pressure and the high heat is so great that it's, it's almost like, you know, if you think about blowing something out with high-pressure gas, you know, where the 
air compressor, that's kind of what you do every time you pull the trigger. You, you kind of clean it with high-pressure gas and heat. Some centerfire pistol silencers uh, are self-cleaning, some are not, and the reason for that is some centerfire pistol silencers are also uh, capable of using uh, 300 blackout uh, uh, or 300 whisper rounds, and those are a little bit dirty, too, so... It's a fairly easy process. Uh, I recommend to most people just soak it overnight, and that helps tremendously to, to clean up the next day. Now, I've seen these, like, um, oil-filter-looking things at gun shows. Uh, <laughs> what are those? Do those work? Are they actually legal? What's the deal with them? Yeah, they're uh, they're kind of comical to me. They're, uh, they're certainly not legal, and uh, you'll never... Uh, well, at least you shouldn't ever see them sold or uh, referred to as a silencer. Usually they have some kind of fancy comical name that they come up with. But uh, they're usually good for about 50 shots. Uh, you know, on a 22, uh, you know, if you don't mind sticking an oil filter on the end of your 22 pistol and get <laughs> a chance on getting caught, well, then, uh, yeah, it, it'll work for about 50 shots. But, you know, how I tell people, if you want to do that, just save your money and stick a one wheel or you know a coke bottle on the on the end of your twenty two. It's just as effective for probably fifteen or twenty shots. Yeah, I think we learned that from what's his name in that movie, uh Mark Wahlberg, right? And shootery. <laughs> puts the yeah. puts the, the soda bottle on the twenty two and then snipes a guy at like two hundred yards with the twenty two or something stupid like that. Yeah, I, I've seen those. I've, I've I, my my thing with them is I guess they're legal to exist or legal to own, but I think it comes into like the whole manufacturing world, like uh, the Roni uh, pistol carbine deal. Uh, you can buy one and you can own one, but when you put that Glock inside of it, you've manufactured an SBR. So it's no longer legal. So if you buy one of those and then you use it to do what you're supposed to do with it to make it into a suppressor, then technically you're in violation of federal law, which somebody may or may not care about. But if they do, you've got a real problem. It's not, it's not a, a walk in the park to to be in violation of that law with the wrong law enforcement officer up your rear. That's uh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's all got to do with you. You know, it's uh, owning it, selling it, and owning it. Fine. It's when you use it uh, in a manner such as that that you break the law. Same thing with the. Uh, I think the SIG brace, you know, it's fine to put it on a SIG uh, AR pistol, but when you stick it up to your shoulder, now you become a felon. So. Well, that was one that the ATF went around in circles about about 18 times, and that's one of those ones, too, that I think people make too big a deal out of that one. If everybody would have just shut up about it and just when they wrote that first letter, just let it be, I think it would have just been let to be, but there was so much hype over it that basically then the ATF came back and said, oh, we've changed our mind. Now you can't do that, which was interesting because it wasn't a law or a new law. They just changed their interpretation of an existing law, which doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. But again, you know, you want to fight that battle with political activism, not in a courtroom as the accused. Exactly, yep. We kind of, uh, you know, I guess the community brought that one on themselves, but they just wouldn't let it go. They just kept talking about it and talking about it. And yeah. Eventually, we got to where we are today, which, you know, hell, it's probably going to change again. 
<laughs> and, and to who knows what. So can you kind of talk a little bit about your company? I mean, who are you guys? What do you do? And uh, what are your goals? Well, it's, uh, the business is locked in the state of Tennessee. We're a class three uh, NFA dealer. Uh, we, we only sell silencers, though. We don't deal in any other uh, class three items. Uh, and I don't compete with gun stores. I mean, you know, I've obviously got FFL license, you know, and I could sell ammo and guns and all that. But I'm I'm only a silencer dealer. I'm only licensed in the state of Tennessee. I do work with a couple of other big uh, silencer dealers. There's one there in Texas where you are, the silencer shop, and I deal with them as an affiliate relationship and process their transfers for anything that's sold in this state or, or if they select me, as I do. And then I've got a, a good friend out in the Dakotas that, that was kind of my mentor in this business that uh, I work with as well on a similar basis. But uh, we we uh, we sell silencers in the uh, uh, in the state of Tennessee. I, I don't have a retail location. I don't have a retail store. I work gun shows and uh, I do range days at the ranges and uh, you know a lot of community involvement in that regard to try to get my name out. A little bit of newspaper or not, excuse me, a little bit of regional magazine advertising uh, to get my name out as well and and, and support, uh, you know, Ducks Unlimited and things like that as well, which I've always done and just, you know, with kind of a different perspective. But do we have a website, uh, southernsilencers.com, uh, and it's a pretty intuitive website. I try to educate people as much as I can with what's on the website and as well as, you know, have a little bit of a retail presence and I'll let them, you know, see what's available. But most of my selling is done after I get face-to-face or over the phone uh, with, with an individual and, and kind of help them through the process, you know, similar to what you and I have done today is was answering their questions and, and helping them and then, uh, you know, and then getting the – helping them through the mystery that a lot of people have about the paperwork and all. Sure. What, what do you think some of the biggest reasons people are coming to you to, to get silencers for? What are, why are they, are they doing it because it's cool, or are they people that do a lot of recreational shooting and just want the, the, the reduced uh, sound signature, or is there a prepper contingent that, 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 that digs this idea? I mean, what, what have you? I think predominantly it's recreational shooters because they – See someone else at the range, you know, the people that just, you know, spend a lot of time at the range. And, and a certain element of hunters, uh, as, as they begin to see, a, a, you know, maybe a hunting buddy or, or whatever with a silencer, then they feel a little more comfortable with using one themselves. So between the range uh, shooters, which are the recreational shooters, and then the, uh, and then the hunting element, but it, it's starting to... Uh, you know, I, I saw the silencer a couple of weeks ago to a, a, a physician uh, in Middle Tennessee, who a, a surgeon, who just wanted a 22 silencer where he could uh, basically shoot in his backyard and, and not disturb his neighbors. You know, and, and yep. he's the type of guy you're never going to see hunting or, or at the range or whatever. And then and I got another customer who's a, a federal judge who, for similar reasons, you know, you you. Uh, Never expect him to own a silencer, but you know he just wants to be able to shoot in his backyard and not to serve his neighbors. Well, I'll tell you, um, down here one of the big things is hunting, and it's 
it's more the feral hogs than anything else. I mean, you shoot a deer, you're you're done for the day. Usually, I mean, we do have on some counties here have a five deer a year limit, but you're probably not shooting another deer in the next five minutes or whatever. But the, we have a population estimated at like six and a half million feral hogs, and there are places where they just need to be eradicated. And you know, if you have a suppressed weapon. You can get a few more of them before they really figure out what's going on and get away. And I mean, and that's completely legal. And in my state, as long as you you you, you got to do this, you you better do this because if they show up and they have not been informed, they are not in a good mood. It is completely legal to go out and shoot hogs at night with lights or NVGs or anything you want. I mean, they're considered vermin because they don't belong here. Um, but like I said, it's what they ask you to do is call the local game and game warden's office and say, Hey, we're going to be in this area. We're going to be doing this. So if a call comes in, they're like, yeah, we know about that. Cause when a game warden shows up at three 30 in the morning and he got, got out of bed because of a call, whether you're doing it legal or not, he's pissed. Um, but that's a big call down here. And then I'll tell you what, I do appreciate it when I'm at the range and there's a guy on the bench just over for me winging away with a three thirty eight or something. And I'm not getting busted in the face with muzzle blast every time he sounds off. Yeah, it's definitely an advantage at the range. There's no question about that. Uh, and as more and more people at the range, you know, have them, it's just definitely going to get better and better. So what's the, the, uh, go, ahead. go ahead, man. I didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. The uh, the feral hog problem is just not hit here yet, and I hope it doesn't from what I've heard about it. I mean, I know it's uh, it creates a lot of, uh, for people like myself who like to hunt and shoot, it creates a lot of, uh, you know, something else to do, something else to hunt, but I, it's uh, they're pretty destructive from what I understand as well, so. Yeah, I mean, we have guys, you know, that have had, you know, the, the South Texas, they're, they're a lot of feed deer down there, and they have to put basically fences that are high enough that the, the hogs can't get in and low enough that the deer will jump over them around the feeders because the hogs will just knock them over and just trash them. They kill fawn deer. Um, they, they're, I mean, they pretty much, you know, a, a wild hog eats, uh, fights, and makes more pigs. That's, that's it. That's all they do. But it is a mixed blessing because... You know, having an animal you can go out and hunt that's also a good meat animal that you can hunt anytime you want, just about any way you want. And landowners are always like, you know, you want to hunt deer. They're like, well, it's $2,500 a gun for a year lease or whatever. You want to shoot pigs? They're like, please do. So it's weird. It's weird to have an animal that's so hated uh, that you try to eradicate it, yet it won't go away. And there's a whole lot of people that talk about it like they want it to go away, but I don't really think they want it to go away. It's It's strange. Yeah, it's uh, it surprises me that they haven't become. Uh, you know, we've got. I'm not real far from land between the lakes, which is a big, large uh, government area that's you know many, many thousands of acres, which would be a great home for them, obviously, and all. But uh, you know, of course, the pigs don't know any boundaries. You know, they're not going. You know, they're not going to stay just in land between the lakes and. And we have a lot of wildlife refuges uh, here in West Tennessee, which is where I'm located as well, that would be great places for them also. But no one is, uh, to my knowledge, is, you know, dropped off any pigs or, <laughs> or tried to get them started in those places yet. Of course, yeah. I may be speaking out of school. They may be there already, and I just don't know it. 
Oh, there's definitely some in your state. They're just nowhere near oh, the yeah. level. I mean, the two states that seem to have the biggest issues with them are Florida and, and Texas. I think Georgia's got quite a bit, too. But South Florida and, and Central and, and Southwest Texas and up into Oklahoma is just – and it, lots of Southern Arkansas, too. They're just everywhere. And, again, it's it's weird. It's like, you know, this animal doesn't belong here. It's clearly destructive, but I like pork. <laughs> I like to shoot things. So, so it's it's weird. Anyway, we're kind of off topic there. Best way for people to get in touch with you, uh, if they're in the state of Tennessee and want to get a silencer or maybe just want to hook up with you for other reasons, would be? Go to the website, uh, www.southernsilencers.com. Uh, there's a phone number on there. There's a uh, an email access uh, opportunity on there if they don't want to do phone. Uh, I do return all phone calls and answer all emails and uh and even you know for the for the uh, for the audience you know if someone just has a question and they're out of state you know I'm happy to answer questions for anybody so you know don't let the state of Tennessee keep you from sending me an email or contacting me and asking me a question if you need some help I mean I I helped a guy earlier this week from uh, Minnesota find a dealer up there to uh to get him hooked up you know and and get him going so I'm happy to help people I'm sure that helps in the long run too, because you you know you get a guy and you you help him find a dealer, and one day he he has somebody that turns out to be from Tennessee. That that kind of thing happens with real estate agents all the time, kind of referring people back yeah. and forth. Or he's you know he's on a forum next week, and uh, you know he you know he remembers hey I've had a question, and and you know Lane Douglas helped me get an answer and, and sort it out, and uh, you know it, it just all helps. You know I'd rather. Real people speak positively of me, you know, regardless of where they're from, than uh, than to get pissed off because I didn't <laughs> help them because they happen to live in another state or something. I just just not my nature. Gotcha, man. Well, it's cool. Uh, again, I want to say though, uh, thank you for being on the air with us today, Lane. I think you've uh, given people a lot of really good information and uh, busted quite a few myths that people probably had locked up in their head for no good reason other than that's what the TV seems to sort of kind of say. Appreciate it, Jack. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope it's a helpful community for sure. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Lane Douglas helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah.